BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from Water Heaters Only, specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968. Licensed and insured. Open 24 hours a day, every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. And the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Our state is in the grip of another round of devastating wildfires, including record blazes that are burning from one side of the Sierra to the other. And we want to turn now to the wildfire emergency in South Lake Tahoe, California. And turning to the Dixie Fire tonight, this fire continues to rage in Plumas County. You can't put your head in the sand anymore and pretend that this this won't burn. And now we're seeing that happen. It's going to be hard because we're going to lose everything. Everything is going to be lost. This is the nightmare so many have feared. Thick forests are exploding in flames. Some of those fires are burning right now in places where indigenous people have long been fighting for their land. Like the Maidu people in the Sierra, the Washoe tribe in the Tahoe Basin, and the Karuk tribe along the Klamath River. Some of California's original residents knew how to manage fire in a different way. They tended their land with fire for thousands of years before European contact. You know, the historical record says it shows that the forest looked like a well-pruned orchard with a constant haze of smoke in the air. You know, we have to give back and we have to support our tribal partners to do what's right in this place. And the reality is, like, if we don't learn that lesson, my children are going to suffer. Earlier this year, we brought you a documentary about indigenous cultural burning practices. Today, we're updating that story about the Karuk tribe. It's one of the largest in California, spanning chunks of Humboldt and Siskiyou counties along the Klamath River. Karuk people being stripped uh, from their relationship with fire has had profound effects. The tribe doesn't manage the land anymore. The federal government does. But the forest is overgrown, and it's thick with dry brush. Really, it's the tribe's land. They were here way before us. And they have the culture, they have the knowledge to do the burns. Let them do it. We're going to rewind back to September of 2020, when a wildfire here decimated cultural sites and homes. 
Firefighters say the smoke in the valley is coming from the Slater and Devil fires burning in the Klamath National Forest in California. That fire and the debate over land management on Karuk lands holds important lessons for wildfires that are continuing to burn across our state. The fire didn't have to be as bad as it was. And I remember getting on the radio and going, does, does everybody know outside what's going on here? We're, I mean, we're losing houses. And they're like, we're sorry, we, there's not enough resources. It's not a priority. On today's show, KQED science reporter Danielle Venton walks through the forest with tribal leaders and others near the town of Happy Camp to talk about cultural burning and why the Karuk haven't been allowed to use it to manage this landscape for more than a century. When Kathy McCovey's land is healthy, anything is possible. My grandmother always used to tell my uncle that everything that we need is in front of us and behind us. Standing by the creek that runs along her property, she remembers seeing big Chinook salmon in it as a kid. This is called the salmon hole. See how it eddies in there? McCovey is part of the Karuk tribe. The Klamath River and its drainages are the lands that shape their way of life. Basically, my grandparents raised me, and then when we come out in the woods, we could gather all this stuff. We could do all these things. So to me, nothing was ever impossible. We could pull fish out of the creek. We could go kill a deer and skin it and, you know, have jerky and food. You know, we could go up and get pine nuts and basket materials. I could make something out of everything that's around me. But the bounty the Karuk people traditionally enjoyed did not happen automatically or by accident. The Karuk people, before the miners came, you had to have areas that you could have dependable resources year-round. Those people took responsibility for managing their landscape. Traditionally, we used to burn about a two-mile radius around where we had permanent houses. Karuk people had lived in permanent houses along the river corridor and up these creeks. Bill Tripp oversees the Department of Natural Resources for the Karuk. He says his people's relationship with the land called on them to take care of it, whether near homes or up in the mountains. With fire being our primary tool. Cultural burns protected the land from bad fire, cultivated oak trees for acorns, encouraged the growth of forage for elk and deer, improved river conditions for fish. Tripp describes a ceremony illustrating fire's role in connecting the relationships among land, water, animals, and Karuk culture. It took place about an hour's drive south of Happy Camp along the river and Black Mountain. That used to be burned every year as part of our world renewal ceremonies. In the ceremony, the priest dives into the river with a belly flop. And those ripples that that creates go down the river and are said to carry the prayer that will bring the salmon up the river. The belly flop, the sound it creates, and the making of that prayer reinforces Karuk belief systems. At the exact same time that that person does that belly flop, you know, that loud clap when you hit the water represents, you know, lightning uh, striking and, you know, reminds us of our relationship with that natural process as humans in this place. The sound carries toward Black Mountain and is a signal to people waiting there to light a fire. The fire burns off all the small vegetation, scorches off the small trees, you know, puts smoke in the air, 
shades the river during the day and so that the sun can't warm the water up as much. And at night when smoke settles, particles clog the pores of the trees, Tripp says, reducing the amount of water they take up and release. It's as if the trees are less thirsty at night, leaving more water in the river, and more thirsty during the day, taking more water out of the river. That swing can help unclog the mouth of the river when it's blocked by a sandbar. So salmon can physically enter the river at that point. Those are the types of things that can cue the salmon to come into the river because it's now safe. But the tribe has not been able to do this ceremony since the late 1800s. Kodak people being stripped uh, from their relationship with fire has had profound effects. The loss of that relationship with fire began in the middle of the 19th century. In those years, California spent millions of dollars to exterminate native people. Miners and white settlers didn't understand the role fire played in the ecosystem. They stopped and even shot Karuk people who lit fires. That legacy is still with the tribe, stripped of their land and of their ability to take care of it. So it's effectively still pushing us out of our ability to live in our Aboriginal homelands, and it continues to function in a manner of systematic colonization and, um, and you know, really, um, really has some, some deeply rooted injustices around the whole thing. The Karuk Aboriginal Territory is near the Klamath River in far northern California. Today, 98% of it is administered by the U.S. Forest Service. After more than a century of suppressing fire and cultural burning, this area is dangerously overgrown. In September 2020, the Slater Fire, lightly ignited by some power lines during high winds, tore across an area bigger than the city of Chicago, killing two people. It's just like it nuked miles and miles and miles. And what carried that fire? Vegetation. You gotta have breaks in your vegetation. Kathy McCovey, who remembers Chinook in the Creek as a kid, is a former archaeologist and firefighter with the U.S. Forest Service. Now she works for the tribe and advocates for cultural burning. She says after the Slater fire, she didn't see animal tracks for months. I saw a lot of skeletons, but it was so hot, it just, ash. You would look and you would see the ash or you'd see a jaw. McCovey lost two cabins. Tripp says the fire burned about 200 homes. Which roughly equates to about half of the homes in Happy Camp. That fire ripped stability out from under many families. Tripp says many are homeless and traumatized. Good jobs are scarce, and fire insurance was already too expensive for many. Recovering from that is going to be something that um, takes generations. Aaron and Leon Hillman sit talking at picnic tables in front of their grocery store, the Kingfisher Market. Leon is a tribal member. Uh, my family's lived on the Klamath River since time began. The Slater fire was carried by winds blowing at 60 miles an hour as it came toward their house. And we could hear the roar of the fire. It was just this, it's like a jet plane. It's insane. And we could see the fire all jumping around the ridges and it was all surrounding the house. Aaron says firefighters did everything they could, but in the onslaught, everyone had to flee for safety. We're um, living in my mom's front yard in a trailer. (laughs) I think she likes it. (laughs) We wish we had our house. 
The Hillman's experience demonstrates some of the profound effects of losing the ability to manage the land with fire. Leon is one of the few in town who knows how to make bows and arrows from you and other woods. I teach a few kids that are interested in how to make bows and arrows traditional. And six years ago, I collected all my arrowwood on that side of the river and then it burnt. Now, I went over this side by my house and all it burnt over here. You woods and stuff like that just don't pop back. The correct plants grow in the shade, not sunshine. Leon doesn't know where he'll find his next collecting site or how long he'll be able to take care of it. Over there burnt, then this burns, and next year that'll burn, and that'll burn, and that'll be it. And so I feel that we're getting robbed. Our culture's getting taken away from us by just neglect. The neglect is visible. It's seen in thick stands of Douglas fir trees that are all the same age, like a plantation, not a natural forest. It's visible in management projects stalled for years. There was a clearing project near Happy Camp that left cut piles of trees and brush. And we managed to get all the piles burnt that were on the tribal trust lands. But Tripp says there were piles along the highway and Forest Service land that didn't get burned. The Forest Service covered the piles in plastic to keep the wood dry. I had advised that they don't cover them with plastic, uh, but everybody seemed to want to use plastic. Well, guess what? The Air District said you can't burn plastic, and it was going to cost too much to pull all the plastic off. And so those piles sat there for about six years or so. Until they ignited from embers thrown by the Slater fire. And they created a thousand points of intense heat, uh, which likely contributed to the spread of, of that fire and, and how far it was spotting. You know, it was spotting two miles out. The Forest Service says attending to pile burns is a priority now and in the future. But Aaron Hillman still feels the area has been neglected by federal agencies and the state of California. Because it seems like, with their lack of management, that they just don't care. That it's like, oh yeah, it'll be okay, it's just a rural area, just a few people living there. People do live here, and the Karooks live here, and belong here, and are staying here. The Karooks do live here and are staying here. So how is it that their ancestral lands could remain so overgrown and undermanaged for decades? Well, that's a story tangled up in policy and priorities. For both the state and the federal government, the priority is putting out fires, not preventing them. And success comes down to how invested the government and the tribe are when it comes to working well together. In the next part of Danielle Venton's story, she's going to explore what can get in the way of that kind of cooperation. Let's go back now to Happy Camp in far northern California, where a wildfire broke out last fall. As the Slater fire torched hillsides in early September 2020, firefighter Scott Steinbring tried to stop it, but he was outmatched. In the 35 years of being in the fire service, I had never witnessed anything like that here. Driven by fierce winds, the fire was tearing through forests and houses in its path, as other fires were doing around the state. Meaning, when Steinbring, fire management officer for the Karuk, asked for backup, 
there was practically none available. And I remember getting on the radio and going, does, does everybody know outside what's going on here? We're, I mean, we're losing houses. And they're like, we're sorry, there's not enough resources. It's not a priority. You know, there was just no chance. That's Will Harling. He helped fight the fire that day. We're by a road in Happy Camp, surrounded by torched trees and houses burned down to the foundations. Harling remembers a local firefighter who pumped water frantically from his pool to wet down his house. I remember we were down there kind of engaged at the fire's edge and and he drove back up here through the flames, you know, and came back out five minutes later, just tears streaming down his face. It's all gone. It's all gone. This small, rural community of Happy Camp lost a staggering 200 homes and two lives. About half of the families, many of them Karuk, lost their homes. I mean, the sad thing is, is that we started 20 years ago preparing for this fire. And we knew it was going to come. Harling directs the Mid-Klamath Watershed Council, a nonprofit dedicated to ecologically restoring the area. He says it wasn't just the wind working against the small band of firefighters that day. Decades of suppressing fires had left the forest here overgrown and primed to burn. The time to do this work is, you know, five years, ten years before that fire comes. You know, do the fuels work, follow it up with prescribed fire, get the fuels in a condition where we can actually save homes and and not be in the state where we have to, you know, just fall back and watch everything burn. Local nonprofits and federal and tribal governments know what would make the situation better. They know the Karuk used fire to keep these forests healthy for thousands of years. Tribal knowledge carried on in this place, and it teaches us how us humans are meant to be in a place. Reestablishing this healthy, traditional relationship with fire, the Karuk say, is key to revitalizing the area. That's true economically. There are good jobs to be had in fire and forest management in an area that's otherwise struggling. It's true ecologically. Controlled fire supports salmon, elk, forage plants, and the systems that they're enmeshed with. Remember Bill Tripp in the Department of Natural Resources for the Karuk? He says it's also true culturally and spiritually. We had a a culturally uh, founded fire regime in place on that landscape at one time. And we have an opportunity to put that back into place. Everyone involved agrees the Six Rivers and Klamath National Forests need more management. Tripp, Steinbring, and Harling are working to apply traditional burning knowledge to the land. They've done training, says Steinbring, identified priority projects, received grants. I'm thinking to myself, well, NGOs, the tribes, we all have funding to do this kind of implemented work. We're coming to the table asking, can we do it? And we're getting shunned. And and that's the frustrating part. The problem lies in how the collaboration has gone, so far, between the partners, the tribe, the nonprofits, and the U.S. government. Here's Will Harling again. The nonprofit he directs is one of those NGOs with funding. We wanted a level of collaboration where we were all in it together. And, you know, the, the people who control fire in California aren't ready to share that power and that decision-making. When it comes to the burning itself... Bill Tripp again. We can't get past this idea that the agency is the only one that can light a fire (laughs) out there in the forest. 
The agency here is the one that controls 98% of Aboriginal Karuk land, the U.S. Forest Service. Mike Appling, fire management officer for the Klamath Forest, agrees working together hasn't been simple. You know, it's a challenge. You know, it's just a matter of putting our heads together and, uh, you know, sitting down and figuring out how to be effective together. Appling says the land does need more prescribed burns, but his ability to act has been constrained by the responsibilities of the Forest Service overall. It's a tough blend, you know, when you've got 42 million people in the state of California uh, today and a bunch of mixed ownerships and such and uh, a number of different contributing factors. Let's highlight some of these contributing factors. First, the Forest Service is fundamentally not in the business of lighting prescribed fires to prevent future bad ones. Core to their mission is putting fires out and managing timber sales. These resources that we have are all funded uh, to be available to suppress fires. You know, oftentimes 11 months out of the year, they have suppression needs in, in other parts of the state. During the last few years in late fall, normally a good time for burning, Appling has seen the Forest Service management put holds on intentional burns because the equipment that would be used is needed on standby for emergency response. They put us at our drawdown and we have to have our engines available and by available, that means not committed to a prescribed burn. And this summer, fighting fires like the Tamarack, Dixie and Caldor, the Forest Service put a ban on all prescribed burns until further notice. Liability is also an issue. The Forest Service doesn't bear responsibility if a wildfire takes out vast swaths of forest. But if a controlled burn gets out of hand, which is very rare but still a risk, the agency can be blamed. Harling, who advocates for more controlled burns, says that's the wrong way to look at it. Not managing the fuels correctly is the criminal act. Choosing not to restore fire process and recent fire footprints after they go through is a criminal act and and really is what came down to all these homes burning down. Start a fire to protect the land and people often complain about smoke in the air. Put a fire out and people celebrate you as a hero. You know, that's where the money is. That's where the promotions are. um, And and that's where the liability isn't. With accelerating climate change and the era of climate fuel disasters, wildfire prevention is becoming its own emergency. Bill Tripp says the time to let the Karuk revitalize traditional burning is now. Now look what's happening. We tried to say it back then. We're still trying to say it. Now why can't we just go do it? You know, at a certain point, that logic's got to prevail. I just hope it's not too late, you know. As he's saying this, Tripp is watching a fire blaze just 50 feet away from us. This was back in June when I visited the Klamath again to observe what a controlled burn really looks like. The flames are close to the ground. It's not that smoky. It's being closely watched by crews who you can hear on walkie-talkies. It feels really safe. And I'm really appreciating the way that they're handling this. This burn is on tribal land, designed to help protect the town of Orleans from wildfires. It's clearing out non-native plants like Himalayan blackberry and scotch broom and making way for natives like mugwort. It's also an event where dozens of young fire practitioners, many of them from local tribes, are getting experience in the careful art of managing a burn. They're building lines of containment, reading winds and moisture levels, tracking how far embers travel, what's catching on fire, and how long flame lengths are. And you see people taking their time They're lighting things, they're seeing how it reacts, 
and they're responding accordingly before they get more fire on the ground than they can handle. As we talk, Tripp says he's noticed more Californians are feeling the effects of climate change in their own lives. I think the aha moment happened in, in 2020 uh, when you couldn't see the sun in San Francisco for days on end um, to where people actually felt the impacts we feel out here every year. I guess it probably triggered a little bit of empathy in the masses, you know. If people are now more willing to listen, Tripp says it's time to talk about how to fix things. You know, we gotta, we got to let people know the hard truths, but we also need to focus on solutions and not get hung up on the negative. And it, it gets really hard to get hung up on the negative all the time. Hard truths need to come solutions, you know. Controlled burns like this one are part of what solutions look like. People are here from other tribes in the area. NGOs, local volunteer fire departments, and the Forest Service. It takes a lot of coordination and cooperation to get these things done, and that can be hard. But as the fire creeps down an embankment at dusk, I'm struck by how beautiful and almost joyful the scene is. People are happy to be putting good fire on the ground. The sound is relaxing, too. I'm, maybe it's just I grew up with it, and it's kind of always been my comfort zone, is just to get out and... You know, fulfill my responsibility to the, everything out there in the world by getting some burning done. And so it just puts me at peace. It may feel like a stretch, or even insensitive, to talk about fire being peaceful when so many Californians right now are feeling its destructive effects. But these forests are meant to burn, and we need to find a way to make peace with fire or fire comes on its own terms. If these forests were still cared for in the way Native people cared for them, we wouldn't be seeing as many cataclysmic fires. Of course, these forests have been mismanaged for at least a century, and it's daunting to think about how much work it would take to restore them. But the Karuk's efforts point the way forward, toward a better relationship with fire. They're partnering with several organizations to host a training this fall, About 100 people will come from across the country to the Klamath Basin to learn how to light and control beneficial fires. That was Danielle Venton, KQED science reporter. By the way, major, major shout out to Danielle for reporting this story while she was pregnant during a pandemic. You can see more of Danielle's reporting from the series Saved by Fire at CaliforniaReport.org. And a version of this story is also going to air soon on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting. This documentary was edited by Katrin Snow. The digital editor was John Brooks. And our sound engineers are Katie McMurrin and Brendan Willard. The California Report's senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Our director is Susie Racho. And our team also includes Amanda Font, Lisa Morehouse, Nina Sparling, and Hector Arsate. Hey, before you go, we wanted to share what's coming up next week on our show. We're going to bring you another documentary from the northernmost part of our state. It's a story about how tribal leaders in California are addressing domestic violence in Native communities by talking openly about the trauma of the past. Things like boarding school, the Indian Slave Act, and massacres. And that behavior 
that came out of those things trickled down to the behavior you're seeing today. Those are the symptoms. But if you have the symptom and you have no idea what the context is, it's really hard to stop it. Colonization intentionally and forcibly severed Native people from their land, their traditions, and languages here in California. People covered up the dance sites, hid the regalia, weren't allowed to speak the language. Language is something that comes out of what people think and believe. And so we learned another language that didn't think and believe what we did. That history created patterns of generational trauma and abuse. And now some leaders from tribes like the Yurok are trying to help both victims and perpetrators of domestic violence to reconnect with cultural practices that were taken away. And that means acknowledging the cycles of violence that have rippled through the community. Actually saying, I'm sorry that happened to you. That is a big component to all of this is being heard. I cannot be in your place, but I can have empathy of what you've gone through. That's the documentary coming up next week on our show. Hope you can join us. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Blue Shield of California, rebuilding the future of health care with every Californian in mind, from quality and equitable care to not-for-profit values. Learn more at news.blueshieldca.com. Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.